It's so good to see you guys looking up here behind me singing that. People having their hands up, right? What great words in those old hymns. Great words to draw our hearts to where they need to be. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to do something a little different. I thought I'd give you a break. Stevie was preaching on sin and, and salvation last week, and we're getting ready to start into the second chapter. Uh, it tells us how dead we all once were, so I thought I'd give you a little, you know, like one of those things. What do you call that machine that, that has those paddles where they rub them together and they hit your heart? defibrillator my nurse I was looking at my nurse in the crowd and I got I got the guy over here who's never been a nurse <laughs> hey brother come on now I'm gonna revive you today all right all right careful uh, if you have your scriptures with you let's read part of the chapter 6 of Deuteronomy Part of chapter 6, we're going to beginning in verse 1, we're going to read down through verse 15. The name of this this morning you'll have in your bulletins, uh, the name of this sermon is Reformation, Revival, Reading, Writing, Arithmetic, How to Love God. You don't have to write that down, you've got to memorize it, there will be a test. Reformation, Revival, Reading, Writing, Arithmetic, How to Love God. I love alliteration sometimes and that just flowed right together, and um, you're going to see some of my heart this morning, probably more than you ever have. Maybe it'll be for too much for some of you this morning. That's okay. We'll meet in the middle somewhere. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land which you're going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I have commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your home and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. By his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in the midst 
For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. The word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to this text this morning, my heart is full. Um, Father, but we need your spirit to invade our hearts. Even in this word, even in this teaching today, to speak to your people directly in ways that I can't. To help them to understand the truth, not only of this passage, but what you've called us to do as those who love you. What you've called us to do as those who see you as God, who know you that way because of what you've done in Christ in our lives. And of those who want to be obedient to the covenant, that want to reap the blessings of the covenant, and want to love you with all of our heart, all of our mind and all of our soul. Father, be diligent to speak to your people this morning, and through your Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. This morning we begin in this passage, and it's, um, you know, you got to kind of set step back a little bit. You, this is the fifth book of the Bible, the end of the Torah, Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those are the first five books of the Bible. And if you understand these five books, and if you read these books, um, this sets up all of Scripture. In Genesis, we have the account, the beginning was the creation, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we have the account of God's created of all the heavens and the earth and, and calling the nation of his people together. It begins, like I said, with God in the beginning. God created, and he, he moves quickly in chapter 12 to the promises that he made of Abraham, or Abram at that time, that he would make of him a great nation and it was through the birth of his son Isaac, and then Isaac's son Jacob, and then Jacob's 12 sons that he made that great nation, the 12 tribes of Israel. Genesis ends with God's people being in bondage to the nation of Egypt. Joseph had died, all the, uh, the 12 sons uh, minus Joseph now had come back together and were in Egypt, and they would grow there mightily. They would grow to such a point that God would deliver them from the bondage of slavery, and that's where we get the book of Exodus. It begins actually with the birth of a, of a prefigurement of Jesus Christ, a Savior, a Deliverer, Moses, who would lead the people out of bondage. You guys remember those familiar stories. And not only would he lead them out of bondage of Pharaoh and Egypt, but he would lead them across the wilderness where they would meet God and receive his law, and then on to the border of the Promised Land. And then we have Leviticus and Numbers, and I'm just briefly telling you these, but these are the books of the law and genealogy that tells you more about that family and how we're to worship God. God prescribes specifically how we should worship him. It's one of the institutions that we looked at as we changed our worship service, wasn't it? We went into that. God even talks about what the priest's robes should look like before they approach him. God very specifically has a way for us to approach him and worship him. And we find all that in Leviticus and Numbers. And then finally we come to the book that we're in this morning. We're just going to spend a brief time here this morning, but we come to Deuteronomy, where Moses will begin to remind the people of Israel of all the promises and provisions of God that they had experienced, not only in Egypt, but from the time God had called them through Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, up until the very present moment as they stand on the, on the edge, the precipice, if you will, of the promised land. How God had made them a great nation, how he delivered them, the, the plagues, I'm sure he, you know, the plagues of, of, of uh, Egypt, the ten plagues, and then as they went into the wilderness and the parting of the Red Sea and how they crossed across on dry land and 
how God consumed their enemies behind them in the water and how God was faithful all the way. It's a message we need to hear often is God's faithfulness. So standing at the border of the promised land just before entering into that good land, Moses reminds them of the covenant promises of God and of the covenant stipulations of God. So it is here in this glorious passage in Deuteronomy that we read and learn of the simplicity and the joy of covenant faithfulness to God and from God. To God as we are called to obedience and from God as we see the great promises and provisions of that obedience of God's love for his covenant people, his kessed love, his steadfast love. It's the love that never leaves us. And we know this in our own personal lives, and we know from reading the Old Testament over and over, what did the children of Israel do? They would walk away. They would forget who God's. They'd kind of put his law away, and they would wander away from him. And he would lovingly and nurturingly, just like a heavenly father or any father would nurture and discipline his children and lovingly bring them back to him. And it's in those different ups and downs of the people's uh, interaction with the law that we see our own lives right we know that we all wonder at times and we get away from God but it's never God that leaves us he always loves us scripture says that he'll never leave us and never forsake us what promises we have it's always us it's always us I tried to tell this and repeat it often before my wife it's always me sweetheart it's always me right but in front of God it certainly is always us And these covenant stipulations and provisions gloriously repeated throughout Scripture are, I believe, the key to knowing who God is and loving God. I can't love God unless I know who he is. And the more I know who he is, the more I do what? I love him. The more deeply I can love him and appreciate who he is. So it's here in these key covenant promises where Moses literally stands for this whole book Uh, It it would be Joshua, as we turn to the next book, the sixth book of the Bible, that's going to lead the people into the promised land. Moses dies at the end of the book, but he spends the rest of his life reminding Israel how faithful God was to his promises. And we just turn back with me, and we're going to look at some of those because we're going to build on something here uh, that is burning in my heart. And and, uh, it shouldn't take more than a couple hours. I know, I do that every week, right? Deuteronomy 4.1. By now, though, you know I'm serious. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 4, verse 1. Look at the words there. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you, and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. So there's the formula, right? It's right there in that simple passage. We read it in chapter 6, and we could bring you 50 other passages of Scripture that give you that. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules. That's the laws and the commands that God is giving, that he had given the nation, uh, that we find first in Exodus chapter 20, though the Ten Commandments, it's God's law that he had given the nation of Israel that tell them exactly who he is and exactly what he expects. Uh, Moses says, pay attention to these, these ones that I'm teaching you, and do them so that... Do you see that there in verse 1? That you may live. Uh, Existence is impossible without these laws and commands from God. Life and life abundant is impossible. Human flourishing is impossible if you do not know God and what he expects and who he is. 
that you may live and take possession of the land. There's a lot of people that live in a place that have no possession. They have no ownership. They have no skin in the game, as it were. But to take possession of the land was to enjoy it for all it was worth, to get out of it all the covenant blessings that God had attended. He wanted them to understand that they were to follow God's statutes and rules so that they could do that. Take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. The land flowing with milk and honey that he had promised. So it's there in that formula. It's the following of God's laws and commands that creates human flourishing in the land. And Moses is telling them, he's indeed encouraging them at the same time and admonishing them, warning them firmly that, that if, he, if they did not pay attention to who God was, because they were God's people, they would not flourish in the land. But they were God's people. They were under God's covenant blessings. So he continues to remind them. Jump down to verse 5 there in chapter 4 and read that with me. He says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And again, I tell you those words possession here are very important because uh, they weren't just to merely live there. They were to own it and to possess it and to live in it for all it was worth and all of its promises. Because it pointed to something much greater. For us, it points to heaven, God's provision, all the promises where he wanted to give them, where they could live in a land where all their needs were met, and that they could continually be before his face and worship him and live in human flourishing. That word possession is important here. Because if you don't possess the truth about God, you'll never possess these things that he wants you to have. Verse 6, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Not only would their following of the laws create human flourishing for them, but that following of the laws and God's commands would allow the other people around them, the other nations that live near them, to see. The word had spread, man, these people are blessed by God, and because they're followers of God, God's blessing them, and we can't deal with them. We can't we can't go over there and overtake them. In fact, they're pushing out all the people that were in the land. My goodness. We've never seen a people like this. Surely a great nation. Verse 7, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? That whenever we call upon him, right? And what great nation is there, verse 8, that has statutes and rules so righteous? The word righteous means right. And if they're right, they're good. Righteous laws are good laws, right? That has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I've set before you today. Sound like uh, another nation that you're familiar with? Perhaps our nation? We were great. We were a moral nation and moral people built on the foundation of the word of God. We practice the obedience to the laws and statutes of God. Certainly we still do here today in this church, but by and large, our nation doesn't follow that rule any longer. But when our nation did, God blessed us. There was peace and human flourishing in this place. There's really never been another nation with the freedoms and opportunity that America has afforded people. But we're no longer that nation, are we? A lot of you sense that. I think a lot of us understand that. But I don't think that we've thought a lot about it other than to be nostalgic at some level for what used to be. We've turned away from covenant obedience by and large, or at least as a nation. 
We have not followed the covenant stipulations, and we should not be surprised with the results. We were a moral nation, but now our streets are filled with violence. Our schools are filled with violence and addiction, sexualized kids, lies, half-truths being taught, children, little boys believing they are girls, and even worse, uh, I heard as I was dealing with some young men uh, this weekend or late this week about kids acting like animals and the school allowing this to happen. All these things are judgment on our nation because we're not following God's laws and rules. You guys know that. Our homes are in shambles, broken, torn apart. Some of you I've shared with since I've moved here, and though I've had so much experience here, and for some reason I just I have a burden to see families thrive. Husbands be husbands and wives be wives and children be raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but we've got broken families and divorce and families torn apart. Our leaders are corrupt, genders confused. We have an entire population of people on psychotropic medications that weren't there some 30 years ago. What changed? It's not the upswing, but there's no upswing in sight, but conditions seem to continue to deteriorate. Why? Well, just like the Old Testament nation of Israel, we've turned from the law of God. We've turned from the covenant stipulations, and God has given us over, as it says in Romans 1, to the desires of our hearts. And right here we are, midway into the full-on consequences of the sins, our sins as a nation. How? How did this happen? How did we get so blind? How did we turn from the word of God, and how did this evil come? Tell you what, that one question lays heavy on this pastor's heart. Because in answering that question, I make a ministry to this church and this community. How did those things happen? Why did they happen? We know why they happened because we turned from the word of God. But how did they happen? I think it's imperative that we, uh, we understand history well so we can see how it has happened because it's happened over the last 100, 150 years. And that's what I want to bring you this morning. Just look at verse 9 of Deuteronomy 4. We read up to verse and through verse 8. But let's look at verse 9, and I'll just tell you this is the burden of my heart right here. Liz and I have fostered children for 20-plus years. We've seen so many broken children from so many broken homes, and it's great to love them and great to bring them into an environment where they can be loved and begin to raise them and begin to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and I'll just tell you right now that we could have done a lot better than that than we have done over the past 20 years. Knowing what we know today, we would go back and do even better. Right? We all would, though, wouldn't we? But I think it's in understanding how, how this took place, how our country got to be where it is, that we're going to be filled with truth here this morning. Deuteronomy 4.9, you see verses, uh, let's just separate this into two, two things. Moses is warning here, only take care and keep your soul diligently, uh, lest you forget these things that your eyes have seen. Moses is warning the nation of Israel to keep their soul diligently. And how do you keep a soul? How do you strengthen your soul? We've been talking about that in Ephesians 1. What brings in light to the soul? What brings in life to the soul? And it's the word of God. Paul makes that prayer in Ephesians 1.15, doesn't he? He says, I've seen your faith and your love for one another, but man, I want you to go on. I want you to experience the wisdom and the revelation of all that God has to offer because it's, it is enlightening to the soul. It is caregiving to the soul. It is good for the soul to know these things. Or 
they will depart. Do you see that in the second half of verse 9? Lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. We're a fickle people. We need to read our Bibles daily. We need to pray daily. We need to be seeking God daily to know him, to love him. That's what I want my children to do. I love it when we sit down and have conversations, when we text. I'm getting to know them a little bit better as they age and become into adulthood and as they deal with problems in their young life and they're getting to know me better. I'm passing along information I want them to know and truth from God and they are passing along to me how they're growing in that. That's what God wants. If he could text you today, he'd say, read my word. And then he'd give you a smiley emoji to encourage you. Okay, probably not. But that's not quite heresy, is it? He wants you to know him. He wants you to communicate with him. He wants you to be in his word. He wants you to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength like we read from 6. But when we quit doing that, those things depart. They go to the background. But listen to the last half of verse 9. Here's where I believe the how gets answered. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. I think we failed. I think we failed when we look at the example in Deuteronomy 6, and we'll go back to that. Do you see what he says? Beginning at verse 4, Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your might. That takes care of you. And these words that I command you today are not just for you. You're to keep them in your heart. But verse 7 says, most specifically, that you teach them diligently to your children. Diligently. What does that mean? Does it mean one day a week at church? One hour a week at Sunday school? Or is this a lifestyle that Moses is writing about here in Deuteronomy chapter 6? It's a lifestyle. I want to say it's an enculturation. What is enculturation? It's the gradual acquisition of the characteristics and norms of a culture. It is the building of a worldview by a group or a person into that culture. It's the adaptation of that child into Christian liturgy or that culture, that culture of God, that worldview that includes in the beginning God and everything else flows rightly from there. That's what he's asking for here. I'm going to show you that in the New Testament in just a minute, but let's read this again. Verse 7, chapter 6, teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets to your eyes. You shall write them on your doorpost and on the houses of your gates. In other words, every which way you turn, the word of God, the statutes and commands of God must be a part of your life, a part of your child's life, and a part of your grandchildren's life. God wants our children enculturated. And if I see one gap, and I've spoke to a lot of people and been in a lot of churches and researched this mightily over the last certainly five years, but over the last 10 years, what I see is a lot of churches with a lot of older folks in them and a big gap. I know you guys see it too. I'm not a rocket scientist, am I? There's a lot of dwindling churches, even in this area, where the older folks are hanging on, but there's few. 
And the younger folks have walked away from church because they weren't enculturated. They weren't enculturated. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Just one verse in Ephesians, I promise. One verse. Chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers. Paul had to be thinking about this because this word that's in the Greek that is translated. Um, well, let's, let's read it and then we'll talk about it. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but raise them or bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. A lot of your translations may say nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's that verb right there. It's the paideia in the Greek, paideia of God. Fathers, raise your children in the paideia of God. That goes right back to Deuteronomy 6. Raise them in the acculturation. Raise them to believe and know who God is. Raise them to understand God's law, God's command, God's testaments. Enculturate them. Give them a worldview. This is more than just 8 to 3 at school. This is from daylight to dark. This is from waking to sleep. This is everything they eat, the air they breathe, should present to them a God they can love. This is an all-encompassing worldview. This was written very specifically. And I don't have time to get into this now, but I'm going to more as the weeks and months come. In the first century Greek, any party that would have read this that Paul was speaking to would have understood what kind of a sword he had just pulled from the sheath when he said, raise them in a Christian paideia and not a secular paideia or a philosophical one as in the first century Greek. Paul, by no mistake is telling them to raise their sons and their sons' sons and their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord to the second and third generation. You know what I've learned doing street evangelism here and all over that I've done it? When you catechize a child in the word of God from the time they're young, it becomes to him life. But when you evangelize a 25-year-old young man on the street who has been catechized by secular education for 13 to 17 years, it becomes to him judgment. You see, the gospel works like that. When I go out and give the word of God to somebody, when I've given it to my son through all of my son's life, it becomes a well of spring of life that wells up into him because as he ages and he begins to understand the world from a perspective and as an adult, he sees God's word, he sees the, the rationale, he sees the, the full view. The older he gets and the better he understands. But when I walk to a 25-year-old that's never heard any of this, it's not life to him, it's judgment. And his ears do not want to hear it. We've taught our children like God's word and command. And that's convicting truth. Doug Wilson said this. And this stipulation, he's speaking about psychotropics in school today. And education, the state of education. He said, this is, and this is going to be convicting. I want to step on some toes. I'm, I, I've already stepped on my own enough. And if I took off my shoe, it'd be, you could see they're swollen up It's so much. Because this is the problem of this. Well, let me read it. And this situation illustrates the nature of our dilemma. Suppose for a moment that some prophet come out of the wilderness about 1958 and predicted that within one generation, one-fifth of all school children would be doped into docility. He's talking about psychotropics, Ritalin, all of those, so that they can be controlled during when? School. Doped into docility or submission. That prophet would have been, of course, been laughed back into his little cave in 1958. 
Yet the spiritual nature of our disease is such that when these things do come to pass, precisely because they have come to pass, it is impossible to see them before they actually happen. We cannot see them because they have not yet happened, but after they happen, we cannot see them because we let them happen. And seeing them now requires our repentance. And what Wilson is saying here is that for us to change going forward and how we raise and children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and as a mission of the church, we have to admit our wrongs, get over them, be forgiven, and go forward, right? We need to repent, revive. We need to have revival in our own hearts and then reform, bring back the word of God. We need a revival of God's word that turns into a reformation of God's people and it begins with teaching our children. How did things get this way, right? People blame the government schools but I'll tell you this, they're not broken. I'll say it again, our public school system is not broken. It's working exactly like they wanted it to. Let me bring, just briefly explain. From the founding of our nation, the enculturation of our children was done in the home and in church schools. Exactly what Paul's saying in Deuteronomy 6. From 1620 to 1830, this was so. But then an assault began, just like it did in the garden. Did God actually say? It was February 21st, 1848, the Communist Manifesto was published. The Communist Manifesto is the public declaration of the policy and aims of the Communist Party. It was written by two Germans, one you'll know, one you won't, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. Been a lot in the news lately about Marxism, right? Do you know what that is? It begins here with their declaration, their ten planks, of how they would change culture. And it's in that 10th plank in the Communist Manifesto, it says this, free education in public schools. Now, listen, this was some 35 years before mandatory public education was a thing in the late 1870s. Free education in public schools, the abolition of child labor in its present form, and combining education with industrial production. I didn't read anything in the 10th plank of that political party's want to raise church children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What you can read into the Communist Manifesto is their want to separate children from the families and from religion so that they can be wards and protections of the state. So they can be the prophet of the state. In other words, the public education that was offered was not for the pursuit of seeking the good, the true, and the beautiful, which leads you ultimately to God. But the education the Communist Party was offering was the structure of industrial production, profit of the state. Note, the education was not offered by the government until the 1870s, as I said, and public school was ultimately a result of efforts by atheists and communists and people uh, that signed a little document in the early 1830s called the Humanist Manifesto as well. Alexis Tocqueville, to Tocqueville, uh, noted the very truth when he came in the 1830s to the United States. He was... Uh, a Frenchman that came directly to the United States just to study democracy and the freedom that was growing here over the 200 years since the pilgrims had landed. He came to America to study the new democratic republic is what he did, and he wrote much about that. And one of his famous quotes is this, when I got here, education was everywhere in the hands of the Protestant clergy. He wrote that in 1830. Those are the one-room schoolhouses that I think we all have a little nostalgia for, that we believe that children were taught the way they were supposed to be taught, in the paideia of the Lord, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, in the Deuteronomy 6 measure of the Lord. 
Now, I remind you again, uh, public schools didn't come along until 1870. His discovery was before that. What I want you to see is that over those 50 years, there was a great push by the humanist and by the, uh, the communist to, to make the, the public school system what it is. That's why I can stand before you and say today that if you understand the history, you understand that this public school system's not broken. It's working exactly the way they want it to do. It's creating atheists, one right after the other, that know nothing of a God who loves them so. But here, in the 1840s and 48, with the Communist Manifesto, they're man, uh, public, pushing mandatory public education because it fits with their ideology of the child being a ward of the state and the breakdown of the family autonomy. To Tocqueville wrote, what, what he wrote was the norm from 1620 until the 1840s or 1850s. And this is the family school and the church school, the one-room Protestant schools, which were very popular from the time the, the, Protestant, or the, the pilgrims landed until the middle 1800s. They're the ones that we have, like I said, in our nostalgic ideal schools of what it should be. But this push for a secular education provided by the state grew, and those sympathetic with communism and humanism, materialism, understood that they must disconnect religion, specifically the Christian religion and its foundations, not only the Christian religion, but the way it was being taught in classical Christian schools. They must separate that to separate the child from the family. Adolf Hitler wrote this in 1933 because he understood. He would be proud of the way the schools are working today. He wrote these words. He said, when an opponent declares, I will not come over to your side, I calmly look at them and say, your child belongs to us already. What are you? You will pass on. You will die. Your descendants, however, now stand in a new camp. In a short time, they will know nothing else but this new community. He was basing it all on the education, the public education of a child. i got to say wow to that. And just in these brief statements of these early designers of public education, I want you to hear these words. And my apologies already for we're just going to go over just a little. Charles Potter, he was a signer of the Humanist Manifesto again in the middle 30s, but he was also an architect of what we now know as public education. He wrote this in the late 1800s, right at the beginning of public education and the motive for its institution. He wrote, education is thus a most powerful ally of humanism and every American public school is a school of humanism. What can the theistic Sunday school meeting for an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teaching? Sound familiar? <laughs> Don't miss the goal. By the way, um, this research is common research through classical people that deal with classical Christian schools. More specifically, some of my research that I'm bringing you here today, and much more. If you guys want to stay for a couple hours, I've got yellow notebook pads full. I, I can read you more. No takers. But they came from Bodie Bauckham's um, sermon at the um, American Academy of Christian Schools in June of this year. Don't miss the goal here. The serpent in the garden wanted to usurp the word of God, and they want your children to do the same. This is about rebuilding a worldview that, that doesn't have anything to do with God. Paul Blanchard, each one of these men writing later, closer to the time of public education's institution. Paul Blanchard, another signatory to the Humanist Manifesto, and another architect of the public system as we know it today. 
Our schools may not teach Johnny to read properly, but the fact that Johnny is in school until he's 16 tends to lean towards the elimination of religious superstition. It's the goal all along. Marx stated that religion is the opiate of the masses and that you needed to be liberated from it. He believed it was fine to practice it on Sunday, but don't bring it into the rest of your life, Monday through Saturday. And I want you to remember the timeline here. The Communist Manifesto, 1848, the Humanist Manifesto in the 1830s. But what else came along in this time? In the late 1850s, there was a famous book that was published called The Origin of the Species by a man named Charles Darwin. Here's the missing dot. I see some of you shaking your head because you know who this is. Here's the missing dot. Here's how they could say this is how we began and this is how all life began. This is how we could get rid of in the beginning God created, right? This is how we can explain everything from a humanistic, from a materialistic explanation. It was through Darwin's work and the origin of the species. And you know what Christians did by and large? They tried to work with it, right? That's where we got deism and they believe that God just wound everything up to explain Darwin and they are doing so even more today. God just wound everything up and kind of let it go. But that's not what scripture teaches. God teaches us in scripture that he is intimately involved, that he is intimately involved in every part of our life. Number three, Joe Burnett and his push for uh, uh, money for education. Again, another signer of the Humanist Manifesto, an architect of the government education, said this, public education is a parochial education of scientific humanism. Let me translate that a little bit. It's the religious education of scientific humanism. We have to understand what's at stake here, beloved. Jesus said when he was tested in Luke 20, 23 through 25, he said, do you remember these words? Show me a denarius. He was being tested. They were trying to trip him up. Whose likeness and inscription does it have on it? And they said, well, that's Caesar's. And he said, well, render unto the Caesar with the things of Caesar. But I ask you today, whose image is on you and our children? God's image. And we render unto God what is God's. Vody would say his famous words is, his and MacArthur's both, is that we should not be surprised that when we send our children to Caesar that they come back and act like little Romans. Charles Hodge, just a couple of Christian replies. Charles Hodge, president of Princeton Seminary. You guys have heard me speak about that a little bit, how all of our seminaries and hospitals were started by Christians, early Christians. He lived from 1851 to 1878. The whole process of education is to be religious, he said, and not only religious but Christian and As Christianity is the only true religion and as God and Christ is the only true God, the only possible means of profitable education in the future is the future fear and admonition of the Lord. His contemporary who took over after him, A.A. Hodge, I am as sure as I am of Christ's reign that a comprehensive and centralized system of national education separated from religion and is now commonly pro- as now is commonly proposed, will prove the most appalling injury for the propagation of anti-Christian and atheistic unbelief and anti-social nihilistic ethics, individual, social, and political, which this sin-rent world has ever seen. I could uh, go on. Like I said, I've got notebooks full of these men who wrote. This is the last one. J. Christian mocking, because I want to get you into the 20th century, because it was well into the early 1920s that two-thirds of all high schoolers were still at home for their education. Uh, But it was just briefly after that where those J. 
church schools, those home educations were given way to the public education system. And it's been for about the last hundred years that we've suffered under that, and we've seen the work of it. J. Grisham Mockham then writes in 1937, he wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism, he says this, when one considers what the public schools in America already are, their materialism, their discouragement of any sustained intellectual effort, their encouragement of pseudo-psychophads, of experimental psychology, which was new at the time, right? One can only be appalled of the thought of a commonwealth or a nation in which there is no escape from such a soul-killing system. That's just a brief history of how I believe we turned away from God as a nation. I'm not alone. There's a whole group of people. In fact, there's an army growing of Christian schools that have committed to going back pre-1830 to teach classical Christian education. I think it's a very good thing. I think it's a kindness of God. I think it's a coming reform of the word of God in this nation that can save these people. Where is the hope for us, you might ask? Because I don't want you to leave hopeless this morning. Jesus Christ, our God is a covenant-keeping God. As I said to you early, earlier, it is not God that leaves us. It is us that leave God. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And the gospel application to the soul of man leads to everlasting life, just as it will to our children, just as it will and change our communities and even this state. We preach the gospel and enculturate the next generation. That's a simple ministry. I think it would be a simple goal for the believers at Park Bible Baptist Church to say, all we want to do is train up the next generation and nurture admonition of the Lord and preach the gospel to the existing people that live around us today. Preach the gospel and culturate the next generation with God. Sounds impossible, doesn't it? But with God, all things are possible. It sounds impossible because we're stuck in where we are. James Hudson Taylor lived 1832 to 1905. He was a British Protestant Christian missionary to China and founder of the China Inland Mission. Taylor spent about 51 years in China. China, at the turn of the 19th century, was not a nice place, beloved. It was dangerous to be a missionary then. He spent 51 years in China. But when he died after those 51 years, in 1905, there were 721 mission stations, 703 chapels, 150 schools, 118 churches. Note that there were more schools than churches. 825 new missionaries, 1,152 Chinese helpers, seven hospitals, 87 dispensaries, and 101 centers for opium addicts. And the kicker, 18,000 baptisms. What we do as Park Bible Baptist Church can now start and bring reformation in 20 to 50 years. Preaching the gospel and cultivating children. God's word is unstoppable and it will prevail mightily if we have the obedience to preach it. He says this in Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It will not return empty but it will accomplish that which I purpose 
and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent him. The question is, will we, will we as believers at Park Bible be obedient to that work? Gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come to a close this morning. Let's feel a heavy burden for our part in this. I think it's clear, the evidence of history for believers is clear, that slowly over a hundred years that our nation decided it didn't any longer need the Word of God as frontlets before our eyes, as words on our doorpost and on our gates, as words in our mouth as we lie down and rise up. We somehow saw no longer fit, and slowly over that time, you've given us the desires of our heart. Father, hear our prayers. Be faithful to cleanse us as we repent of our sins and renew us in the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the goal and the hope of the gospel. It's never too late. It is your perfect sovereign work, even that we're here this day, October 30th, Reformation Day, 2022, in Pennsville, New Jersey, at Park Bible Baptist Church, these exact believers here with us to do your work and will in this community and in this state. Father, make us mighty warriors for your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please stand.